Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Chris Jennings. Uh, we were talking about migration and wintering distribution. Big topic, where are the ducks? Um, I've got Dr. Tom Mormon, Ducks Unlimited's chief scientist here with me. Um, we already went through weather, which is a major component of migration, but um, we're going to focus on landscape change and variation here. And, and Tom, there's some, some really interesting information about how the landscape, how the habitats have changed and how that impacts the wintering distribution of waterfowl throughout all of North America. Yeah, there is, uh, you know, there's both a, a long-term sort of a, a historical ecological perspective on landscape change, and then there's the, say, more modern, say, what's happened in the past 10 to 20 years, and both of them influence waterfowl distribution. Obviously, none of us were around when a lot of the change happened, yeah. but we are here and seeing additional change that continues to happen. I think one of the things that often people probably don't really think about or appreciate is if you pick any landscape important to waterfowl in North America, whether it's the Prairie Pothole region, the Mississippi Valley, the Gulf Coast, Central Valley, uh, South Atlantic, wherever you are, those landscapes, a way to think about them is sort of like a living, breathing organism, and they change. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in unexpected ways and sometimes in rapid ways, and sometimes for the better to waterfowl, but more often than not, we see change that impacts waterfowl negatively. Absolutely. So it's important to kind of think about that as you say, you start asking yourself, where are the ducks? Um, and kind of put some, some historical perspective on it. If you think back to, say, 200 or 250 years ago, if you think about those places that maybe you hunt now that are, that are well-known waterfowl landscapes, Gulf Coast, Mississippi Valley, the prairies, all were in native habitat, mm -hmm. uh, hardwood bottomlands, coastal marsh, prairie grassland. Well, in the course of just about 150 years, it went from those to intensively altered, highly agricultural landscapes, and birds had to adjust. Yep. They had to adapt. And, you know, probably about the turn of the 19th century, we started to learn and hear, not we, because I wasn't alive <laughs> quite then, um, but we started to have documentation that birds are starting to field feed mm -hmm. on grain, on harvested grain fields. Yep. And so that's been around a long time now, going on over 100 years. Some species like mallards probably, or geese actually probably pioneered it. Mallards probably learned from geese. And now they're well adapted to do that. Yeah. And that has implications to, to migration timing and fall distribution relative to what hunters see because they can stay longer. If there's food that's not covered by snow and ice. Yep. And I always use the example with people. Think about a snow goose. Born in the tundra. It flew all the way and wintered in the Gulf Coast. Yeah. They had to get there. I mean, they couldn't even stop in most areas. Yep. To, now they can, there's so many different areas for them to stop. So that's always a good example that I use for people to explain that sort of thing. Yeah. Snow goose populations historically probably were limited by winter habitat in that migration. Yeah. Because it was essentially nonstop. Now they have multiple places where they can refuel mainly on waste agricultural grain 
and we see a population response. Mm-hmm. You know, there may have been a half a million snow geese at one time back in the day, and now we have, by some estimates, over 14 or 15 million. Yeah. And no end in sight in terms of their population trajectory. It can go much higher. So, yeah, you see those kinds of things, and it's, it's important to keep that kind of thing in your long-term perspective as you think about sitting in your duck blind not seeing any birds and thinking about how these birds have adapted to some of these changes. Then in the more near-term situations, you know, we still see wetland loss and drainage. We still see changes in cropping practices, sometimes for the better, sometimes Mm -hmm. for the worse. And sometimes that perspective depends on what latitude at which you live and hunt. Uh, Corn, for instance, is expanding northward. It's now grown in North Dakota and and in Manitoba. Now, mallards, geese, uh, pintails especially have all adapted to field feeding on waste grain. They were pretty good at uh, using wheat and peas and barley that was already there. Mm -hmm. Now they have additional land that's also been converted to corn. And some of that took native prairie out of production to grow that stuff. So they got a lot of options at that latitude that, you know, typically they'll get kicked out of there by snow and ice. Um, but as they come south, we still see lots of agricultural waste grain in fields, and they still are able to to make use of it. Um, then on sort of the reverse side of that, so that kind of increased the, the carrying capacity or habitat for waterfowl. On the reverse side, if you look at places like the Gulf Coast, rice agriculture has actually declined by 50 or 60%. Mm-hmm. So, and snow geese especially kind of voted with their stomachs and moved out. especially coastal Texas, right? Yeah. Um, Now they're up in the Mississippi Valley where there's still about a million acres of rice. That Texas area used to be, historically, it was a fantastic, well-known as a fantastic. That's right. Snow goose hunting area. That's right. All kinds of uh, outfitters down there and all that sort of thing. And most of that today is, there's still a few down there, but it is nothing. It's a shadow of what it used to be Mm -hmm. with all millions of geese having moved north into the Mississippi Valley. The other one, I think that people maybe don't think about, but, you know, since about the 1930s, uh, Louisiana has lost 40% of its coastal wetlands. That amounts to somewhere between 1 and 2, 1.3 million acres of coastal wetlands. That is a huge change in a landscape in terms of its capacity to support wintering waterfowl. Even as recently as the 1970s or 80s, there was still more marsh down there than there is today. So now we're starting to talk about in the lifetime of an individual hunter, you can see these changes. Yeah. And people down there wondering where their ducks went. Well, if their marsh turned salty and doesn't have food, the ducks won't use it. And if it further, if it erodes and turns into open water, the ducks surely won't use it. And that's happened a lot down there. Yeah. And, and there's other variables involved with that too. Even if the marsh hasn't eroded. There could be a non-native species. Oh, absolutely. You know, moved in. Uh, yeah. in we yeah. can get into that here shortly, but I sure. mean that's a huge issue down there as well. Yeah, invasive species of plants cover up a lot of those wetlands, and they're not beneficial to waterfowl. Yeah, I mean you're leaving them with no, nowhere to really go, nothing right. to eat. There's really no reason for a duck to you know be down there if if you have a complete wetland loss, which makes Ducks Unlimited's you know coastal restoration work even more more important down there, yep. especially. Absolutely. Be the first to know when ducks are on the move. Sign up for DU's waterfowl migration email alerts and receive ongoing in-depth updates on the latest habitat conditions, weather changes, and hunting reports for your flyway. Visit ducks.org migration alerts. 
we've got a couple different, you know, used had a couple different examples of, you know, with the Texas and the the Gulf Coast, but um, you know, just the overall loss of wetlands, I think people have a hard time understanding how that how that impacts, you know, all the way from from Canada to um, the Gulf Coast. And if you can just kind of explain exactly, you know, what people may see just in their lifetime throughout, you know, the, the Mississippi Alluvial Valley or something like that, that sure. that you guys are seeing on the science side. Maybe it's bottomland hardwood forest. Maybe it's, um, you know, simple prairie, you know, semi-permanent wetlands, things like that, that you're seeing that the science team can really point at and say, oh man, this right here could be very impactful. Um, can you kind of just point out a couple examples of that too? Sure. So there's a lot of variation within and among landscapes relative to what happens. And most of them, generally speaking, have lost habitat. Uh, historically, certainly they've lost habitat. Almost every state in the U.S. has lost 50% or more of its wetlands. Uh, the same is true for most of the prairie provinces. So that in and of itself affects not only waterfowl production, but also places for birds to sit, rest, and refuel during migration and places to sit in overwinter. So we see that over sort of the long term. Um, in some landscapes, there have been fairly significant efforts at restoration. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about the Wetland Reserve Program, uh, some of those kinds of things. It puts some habitat back. It's going to take several more decades for that stuff to sort of synergize and come together and be really useful to waterfowl. Uh, There are others where we continue to see significant loss. We just talked about the Gulf Coast. There are others where maybe restoration or rice producers have joined us or partnered with us to, to flood rice fields, say the Central Valley of California. About half the birds that winter in the Central Valley of California are dependent upon flooded rice fields. Mm-hmm. Now that's great, except until you understand water policy and scarcity in the West. Yeah. And so while they've made significant gains in working with those producers, if there's a law or a policy shift in how water is allocated, then that water could go away. And in the blink of an eye, thousands and thousands of acres of winter waterfowl habitat could be is at high risk and could be gone. Yep. And we saw that actually happen just north of California in uh, southern Oregon, the Klamath mm-hmm. National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, some changes in, in water allocation were clarified by the courts, and the refuge system no longer gets very much water. They flood now about 2,000 acres, where I think they used to flood about 30,000 acres. Now, it's important in fall, but when it was really critical was for spring migrating details. So we see those kinds of things. We can quantify their impact on landscapes and the landscape's ability to support birds. And those are the sort of things that we're constantly monitoring and trying trying to assess impacts and, more importantly, be nimble enough to respond and restore, enhance, or increase the capacity of the remaining habitat so that birds can be there and hunters can have birds while they're hunting there. Yeah, it's very much a targeted conservation reaction. It you is, know, and, yep. and it, that makes it very difficult. Um, we'll, we'll go ahead and move on here, but in, one thing that everyone asked about when the wear of the ducks is not only was it warm um, last season and uh, frustratingly warm, I probably fielded so many phone calls where 
I'm like, hey, guys, 62 degrees in Nebraska in January. That's That was my answer to about 50 phone calls. But it was wet. Boy. Unusually wet. Yeah. So let, let's explain what happens to waterfowl distributions when just an amazing amount of water hits these landscapes. Sure. Um, so last winter is a really good example, and it wasn't just one landscape. Uh, if you go and look at uh, National Climate Data Center or NOAA's websites, one of the things you can look at, and this is one of the things I look at actually to try to get a sense of what habitat conditions are, say, in the Mississippi Flyway in fall and winter, you can look at river flow. And now what, is that, how, what does that relate to? Well, it's a good indicator or proxy for not only precipitation, but for how many wetlands might be on the landscape. Last winter, rivers throughout the eastern half of the United States, basically from the Mississippi River east, were all at the 75th percentile or more in flow, and most of them were at the 90th percentile. What that tells wow. me is most of them were at flood stage, right? Yep. They're all flooded. They're all flooding. And translating that into a landscape scale situation, there is water, water everywhere which means ducks can be just about everywhere mm -hmm. that the water depth is appropriate for them to feed, and they can be anywhere where there's water and they can sit and be undisturbed yeah. if they're just chilling out. And so when you get a year like that, birds have tons and tons and tons, acres and acres and acres, literally probably millions of acres of options. Yeah. And even in the, in the face of intense hunting pressure, as much as hunters would like to be everywhere they can that ducks are, in a year like that, it's impossible. Yeah, that's impossible. It's I've impossible. heard reports of, you know, several hundred thousand ducks, sitting, mallards mainly sitting along these flooded out rivers and in areas that, you know, even traditional hunting clubs in Arkansas and Mississippi and some of these places that have fantastic habitats. Yeah. They're just not drawing birds once these, uh, you know, these no, normally dry habitats actually get that water. Yeah, over the course of spring and summer, of course, I have to travel a lot in my job, but I talk to a lot of hunters from Wisconsin, North Dakota, down to Louisiana, and the story was pretty similar. Yeah. Exceptionally warm, unusually warm, and man, was it wet. Yep. And I guess the the as a duck hunter, this is a little painful, but it's a great year for ducks, not a great year for duck hunters. Yeah. And in fact, the harvest, if you go on Fish and Wildlife Service's harvest data, if you look at that, almost all the states had reduced harvest. Absolutely. Not just the South. It was mm -hmm. everywhere. Yeah. And it was just a crazy year. And that was the thing. I talked to guys, you know, while I'm with in Mississippi, and they're, of course, you know, they're boohooing. It's, they're having a terrible season. My buddies in Indiana, they're having a terrible season. The guys I know in Minnesota, they were not having a good season. Um, and so it was kind of one of those deals where even on the East Coast, it was rough, and it was almost a, a kind of laughing matter just because it was so frustrating that we are like, yeah, you know, it's literally miserly, misery loves company here. You know, we're all in it together, and it was a rough season throughout. Yes, it was. But, but yeah, and that, that makes the perfect recipe for, you know, so you've got warmth, water, additional habitat on the landscapes for ducks to get away from hunters, to feed, everything. It really, really made for a, a tough, tough duck season. Yeah, I guess, you know, if there's a silver lining in that kind of a situation, birds overwinter and survive really high in years like that. And so more should have returned to the prairies than might have otherwise. Mm -hmm. And and unfortunately, when they got there, they found pretty dry conditions. So we're not probably not going to see a huge bump out of that. Yeah. 
Had it been wet, we might have got an extra bump. For a second there, I thought you were going to be the absolute optimist. Oh, <laughs> I wish I could, man. I, I know. I was I in know. Saskatchewan twice this year. Yeah. It's pretty tough, pretty tough to be a duck this year. Absolutely. Well, Tom, I appreciate you joining me here. Uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks a lot, and I'm sure everyone picked up some great information from this. Thanks, Chris. Enjoyed it. Special thanks to Dr. Tom Mormon, our guest today. And a special thanks to Clay Beard, Ducks Unlimited podcast producer, who does a great job putting this show together. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for supporting Wetlands Conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show, and visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.